The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Uh, this morning, uh, after the first session, when I was walking out, uh, people uh, stopped me and tried to ask me questions. Then I said uh, that was not uh, the time to ask questions. We were getting late for our dana. Therefore, I uh, suggested to them to ask questions after dana, after lunch. So I thought of uh, spending one hour now for answering your questions. Uh, so please... Uh, if you have any questions, especially those who try to stop me <coughs> this morning, and now I, I now I stop. <laughs> so, and it is your chance to ask me questions. Oh, good afternoon. Uh, I've been reflecting a little on uh, what I've read the three characteristics of uh, reality or of the world, impermanence, uh, non-self, and unsatisfactoriness. But when I look at a flower or the ocean, I don't find that unsatisfactory. So I'm wondering, does the unsatisfactoriness arise from our clinging or our attachment to things rather than some inherent unsatisfactory in phenomena just in itself. I think <clears throat> that's very, very good question. Uh, it is not purely because things are impermanent that uh, there is unsatisfactoriness. As you said, as you said, oceans trees, flowers, birds, the earth, and so forth and so on, are impermanent. But they don't make us unsatisfactory. There are millions of people fall sick and die. We even don't know. So we are not unsatisfactory. Um, so, there is a confusion uh, that uh, if the things are impermanent, they necessarily are unsatisfactory. Now, that does not relate, impermanence in that way does not relate to unsatisfactoriness. What it means is uh, <coughs> if the unsatisfactoriness arises from becoming attached to impermanent things. If you are not attached to impermanent things, you are not unsatisfactory. All un impermanent things will not become unsatisfactory so long as you are not attached to it. Now, this impermanence that the Buddha was talking about, as I mentioned this morning, as a part of our meditation, uh, refers to our own 
form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations and consciousness. Whatever is impermanent externally also related to these five aggregates. And we are attached to these aggregates. For example, the example of uh, ocean. Uh, if you become attached to the ocean, when the ocean changes, you become unsatisfactory. If you are attached to the body, when the body changes, you become unsatisfactory. If you are attached to your feelings, when the feeling changes, you are unsatisfactory. If you are attached to your perceptions, since the perception changes, you become unsatisfactory. If you become volitional, attached to volitional formations, then the volitional formation change, you become unsatisfactory. If you become, when your consciousness changes, if you become at, attached to consciousness, then you become unsatisfactory. So, we become unsatisfactory only when we are attached to impermanent things. Impermanent things are permanently impermanent. If somebody asks you what is permanent, that is impermanence. Even if you attain enlightenment, you cannot make impermanent permanent. All you do is you remove your attachment to impermanent things. When you attain enlightenment, what you do, you become free from attachment to impermanent things. Then you become enlightened and impermanent things can go on being impermanent. You will never make impermanent permanent when you attain. Buddha never came to this world to make things permanent. And this is one of the, as Buddha said, one of the established Dhamma. Dhamma Niyama. Element of Dhamma. Dhamma Dhatu. Buddha said, Uppadava Bhikkhe Tathagatanam Anupadava Tathagatanam Thitava Sadhatu Dhamma Thitata Dhamma Niyamata. Sabbe Sankhara Anichati Tantathagatu Abhisambhujyati Abhisameti Abhisambhujyitva Abhisametva Ajikriti Deseti Panyapeti Pattapeti Vivarati Vibhajiti Uttani Karoti. Because whether the Buddhas come into existence or not, this established Dhamma, this element of Dhamma exists. Buddhas understand them, realize them, then having understood, realized, Buddhas teach, explain, expound, describe, analyze to, for people to understand. So, impermanence is there always, always. So long as we are attached to impermanent things, we go through suffering. The moment we stop attachment to impermanent things, our suffering stops. So, 
Therefore, impermanent thing being, for example, this stick is impermanent. It can break, burn, destroy, disappear. Then what is the big deal? We get another one. But if this is given to me by one of my dearest person, I have a sentimental attachment to it. I cling to it. I think as any every time I look at it, gee, so and so gave it to me. I love so and so. So and so reminds me this reminds me of so and so. So I I'm attached to this. And when it is, when it breaks, it breaks my heart. I feel sad. If I don't have any attachment to this, I don't care whether it is burnt, stolen, or broken, or disappeared. I don't care. So, it is not the impermanent itself that is unsatisfactory, but our attachment to impermanent things. When we attain enlightenment, what we do, really do, we remove, get rid of, make uh, uh, attachment null and void. That is the cause of suffering. Remember in the Four Noble Truth, what is the cause of suffering? Attachment. Attachment to what? Impermanent things. Isn't it? Is there anything permanent that we attach to? Is there anything, uh, any attachment to permanent things? No. Even if you say, I love Nibbana. I am attached to Nibbana. Nagarjuna said, uh, Nibbanang anupadami nirvanang me bhavishyati iti esang grasthesang upadana mahagrah in Sanskrit. Nirvana is mine. I attain nirvana. It is, I belong to nirvana. Then you, that is the biggest impediment. This is a very important thing that you brought out. When we, <coughs> Buddha said, Kumbhupamankaya mimang viditva, nagarupamankitamidang tapetva, yodheta marang panya yudhena gitanjarakke anivesanosiya. Meaning, knowing the body as a pot of clay, brittle, subject to bed. Knowing the mind as a city. City has all kind of things, beings, dirt, persons, dogs, cats, animals, so called vehicles, you know, motorcycles, everything in the city. <laughs> all active. Mind is exactly like that. In that city, Mara is always there to break the body. So Buddha said, fight the Mara with wisdom, 
योधेत मारंग फान्या युद्धे ने योधेत मीन्स डू युद्ध फाइट फाइट द मार एंड देन व्हाट जितांचे राखे अनिवेश नोसिया व्हेन यू फाइट द मार यू गेन व्हेन यू यू फाइट टू गेन समथिंग व्हेन यू गेन protect it without attachment how can you protect anything without attachment the very fact that you fight is to gain something the very fact you gain protect something proves that you attach to it isn't it when you have something you protect it at the cost of your life because you attach to it here but buddha says protect without attachment if you at are attached you have not won the battle that means you still have attachment and you suffer so long as you have attachment you suffer i give a very simple simile for you to understand this uh, beautiful profound philosophical spiritual teaching of the buddha it is uh, like climbing a ladder when you climb a ladder you have to stand on one rung and hold on to the other rung if you keep holding standing on one rung and keep holding to the other rung you will never climb you have to let go of the one you are standing and let go of the one you are holding is it it so every time you hold on to the rung you have you are holding on to thinking of letting go of that rung only then can you climb similarly when you gain spiritual gaining you protect it but don't cling to it don't cling to it and that is why in the alagaddhuta musutta buddha said kullupamaham bhikkhe dhammang deshemi mittharnatthaya no ghanatthaya because i teach the dhamma just like a raft what is the use of a raft is to cross a body of water you use it once you use the raft and cross the body of water in order to show your gratitude to the boat or the raft would you carry it on your shoulders no you leave it behind for somebody else to use if you hold on to it you are very foolish carrying a burden similarly use this body as your raft to cross over the body of samsara and then you leave it that means use the body without attachment 
body is impermanent, feelings are impermanent, perceptions are impermanent, volitional formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent, seeing, understanding, knowing, realizing, penetrating this impermanence. Don't become attached to it. If you have become attached to it, you continue to suffer and never get out of that repetition of birth and death. When Buddha was going to pass away, he said that, he said to because, because this body is impermanent. Buddha was fully enlightened. He would have lived for another forty years if he wanted. But he wanted to prove to the world that even the Buddha is impermanent. So, friends, uh, we have to understand this meaning of the connection between impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. I'm sorry I took about twenty minutes to answer your question, because it is a very, very important question. Yes. Uh, in in light of your previous answer, does that mean that when one loves, loves deeply, one automatically suffers because one is therefore attached to one's love? Yes. I tell you this. That's a very important part of the question. I I skipped that. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know to make you suffer <laughs> by telling everything. Since you asked me, I, I, I answer the question. <laughs> you know, uh, we want to be happy. Uh, by uh, Buddha said, Yato Yato Sammasati Khandanang Udayabhyang Labhati Piti Pamajang Amatantang Vijanatang. As one sees the rise and fall of Sankara, one becomes full of joy uh, and disappointed with suffering. It's a very important thing. When one sees rise and fall of Sankara, one becomes disappointed, disenchanted with suffering. And that is the way to attain liberation. Yato yato samvasati khandana uvel, labhati phiti pamojjang, amatantang vijanatang, it is just like amata, deathlessness, nibbana. That means, Uh, who would enjoy suffering? To, when you say you will be disappointed with suffering, disenchanted with suffering, when we say that there, is an, there can be an assumption, when you say you are disappointed with something, assumption is that you have been enjoying it, isn't it? Previously you have been enjoying it, now you are disappointed with that. Now, question is, who enjoys suffering? To be disappointed later on. 
eh? you enjoy suffering. You enjoy suffering all the time, not only sometimes. <laughs> you enjoy suffering, but you never say that it is suffering. You say, oh, I am enjoying. I am enjoying. In reality, you are suffering. You don't know that. I tell you how. <laughs> Buddha said, Yo sukhang abhinandati, so dukhang abhinandati. One who enjoys pleasure, enjoys pain. How? Nobody likes to enjoy pain. They want to enjoy pleasure. But you enjoy suffering as well. It is just, it is what I call, <laughs> you buy one and get one free. <laughs> right? You work very hard to enjoy. <laughs> Isn't it? You work very, very hard to enjoy, to, to, to earn, to enjoy. Can you work hard to enjoy without pain? Then the very word hard working means pain, suffering. And you never pay attention to that. You are always looking forward to the pleasurable moment. And Buddha said every day, in Mahasatipatthana Sutta, every day, every moment, there are sixty moments that we enjoy and sixty moments that we suffer. I explain this if I have time in the afternoon, uh, after this session. <coughs> so how you uh, enjoy suffering uh, you enjoy pleasure and enjoy suffering at the same time and you buy one and get one free. You can never, never leave the free one. It is the, it is the part of the package. It comes together. For example, this is, please don't misunderstand this example that I give you or similes I give you, they are very meaningful. <coughs> you got to think about it very carefully. Parents, we all have parents. Sometimes some of you are parents. Now see the amount of pressure they have when they have children. They love to have children. Even I like to see, see children, although I don't have my own. I love to see children. Beautiful, very pleasant, soft, gentle, very nice smile, and very fondly talks. Everything in their appearance, very beautiful. And parents are much more uh, joyful to see their, their children, babies. See the amount of pain the parents go through to bring up children? Anytime, any society, anywhere in the world? 
that parents completely ignore the pain, suffering that they go through to upbring the children, upbring their children. And this all come together. You cannot separate one from the other. <coughs> Similarly, we enjoy our life. Every bit of our good health we enjoy. Every good bit of our strength we enjoy. Every bit of our beauty we enjoy. Every bit of our present clear understanding we enjoy. Everything that we like we enjoy. Does it last forever? And then what happens? We suffer. So, uh, what was the question I was answering? <laughs> you love, yeah. You, you, you love. Ask yourself honestly, do you really enjoy all the time? How much jealousy you cultivate when your partner, your lover, if you see your lover with somebody else, how jealous you will be. Is it pleasure? Some people enjoy that. <laughs> I remember, if you are not jealous, your partner will be upset. <laughs> a friend of mine came to me and said that he went to a shopping mall and his wife met a man who, whom she had not seen for a long time. So when he, when she saw him, she started talking with her, with him. So this man let him, let her talk with him. And he went on browsing this big shopping mall. He browsed and browsed, took his own time, let them talk. Afterward, he came and uh, sat in the car. And his wife also finished her conversation with her old friend. And came and sat in the car and she was very angry with him. Why? Because he was not jealous. <laughs> he let her talk with this man. He should be jealous of her. See? <laughs> See? <laughs> Even jealousy for some people is a pleasure. Enjoyment. In my mind I cannot understand how this happened, but that is how some people, you know, <laughs> enjoy jealousy. So, it doesn't matter where you turn around, so long as you have attachment, no matter what word you use, with that attachment you have pain and suffering. No question about it. Yes, somebody else has another question. <laughs> Thank you for the teachings. Um, I have been wondering, and every now and then I have read something about, well, what happens after one becomes a Buddha? Um, what happened to Arthur? When 
after one becomes a Buddha. Uh-huh. Um, part of me says, well, who cares? But then part of me says, no, I really need to know. Um, so then is then does one have a choice to come back and serve other beings? And for then again, not forever, because as long as eons go on. So there is this ambiguity for me. What, what happens at the end? Okay. Um. After attaining, after becoming Buddha, uh, you must come back and uh, help others. That's what you have heard. If it, if it does, if that doesn't happen, uh, after becoming Buddha and passing away, uh, then what? That's the question, isn't it? Yes, and and that connects with well, where all these uh, waves of the oceans, where do they come from? I mean, the voice is not clear to me. Um, it keeps shutting off and coming back the microphone, so I, I'm trying to not move. So then, in connection with that, is where is this waves and uh, waves of the ocean of souls and beings? Uh, who start all over as a new soul? It's just like there's there's that piece is never the loop never gets closed for me. The circle of where did I come from and where is the end? Ah, oh. uh, <coughs> okay. Now uh, there are a lot of things in your question. Uh, I first one I want to uh, answer is after becoming Buddha uh, and after his last uh, Paranibbana, uh, according to Theravada Buddhism, uh, that is the end of his repetition of birth and death in samsara. That is the total final end, finished, kaput, nothing happens. That is Theravada Buddhism. And uh, other branches of Buddhism, they believe that uh, that is not the end. Uh, so he uh, comes back and uh, keeps helping uh, other beings. Uh, so uh, our uh, answer to that is then uh, that uh, attainment is not complete, perfect, the person has still some attachment to uh, samsara. Even <coughs> uh, a desire to help somebody is a desire, is an attachment. Doesn't matter how for uh, what form of desire it is, uh, we still have attachment. Therefore, so long as we have attachment, we have suffering. So the one who comes back again and again has not ended his suffering, ended the course of suffering. That is greed, desire. <coughs> so no matter in what form it, is, it comes from. So this is how we uh, respond to that part. And about the beginning and end, uh, where it began and so forth, uh, people ask um, the question, 
uh, is it like uh, chicken and egg argument? We have an answer to that. <coughs> when you break the egg, that is the end of the chicken. <laughs> and uh, so that is discernible. What the Buddha Buddha said. Uh, Anamatagoyam bhikkhya sangsaru pubba kotina pañyati avijyati bhavatannaja. Beginning of this repetition of birth and death is indiscernible. Beginning is indiscernible. Remember, remember the words. Beginning is indiscernible. <coughs> he never said end is indiscernible. Beginning is indiscernible. But end is discernible. You can understand the egg. Just like breaking the egg, that is the end of it. It's egg simile is very beautiful simile. <coughs> because there is an embryo in the egg. This embryo slowly, gradually grows. Grows and grows and grows and then chick forms, is formed. When the chick is formed, this little chick inside the egg slowly using its uh, very tender beak and claws breaks the eggs and come out. Similarly, <coughs> uh, embryo or the, the, the uh, Seed of wisdom is in us. Around the seed of wisdom, there is ignorance. Ignorance is like the shell of the egg. So that when wisdom, when the, when wisdom slowly, 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 slowly grows and grows and grows and grows and grows, and then it becomes so strong, so powerful, so bright and strong and sharp that it can shatter the egg of shell of ignorance. Then we attain enlightenment, becomes totally free from uh, imprisonment. So long as we are, we have not broken the shell of ignorance, we are within that ignorance shell confined in, in inside. So, <clears throat> the moment we break it, we don't know when ignorance began. The beginning we don't know. But end is conceivable, understandable, possible, discernible. All we have to do is to break the shell of ignorance. But the beginning we don't know. And that is very true. We cannot find the beginning but we can find the end. <coughs> okay, any other question? I have uh, a question. Yes. Is this on? Can you hear me? Is this working? Oh, there we go. <laughs> Good afternoon. Thank you. I've been noticing in my meditations, in meditating, or even just in waking and walking life, a lot of judgment arising in my mind. Um, judgments of others, judgment of myself, a lot of 
Please uh, speak a little louder. Can you hear me? I can hear voice, but why words are not very clear. I will speak more clearly. Okay. I am noticing a lot of judgment, uh-huh. and I'm wondering how to work with it. Judgment? Judgments. Uh-huh. In my meditation and in my waking, just daily life, a lot of thoughts of judgment, a lot of emotions of judgment. Okay. Now... <coughs> Judgment is uh, uh, not totally bad, uh, although sometimes people say don't judge. Mm-hmm. And Buddha always encouraged us to judge, to see the difference between good and evil. Uh, and this judgment is not about other people, but the judgment of good and evil within us. Asking question, is it right? When certain mental state arises, we must ask, is it wholesome? Is it beneficial? Is it meaningful? Is it harmful? This kind of questioning, asking is a, a kind of judgment. We want to judge. And when something is uh, harmful to me, harmful to others, and harmful to both, we consider it to be bad. That's a judgment. When something is beneficial to me, beneficial to others, beneficial to both, then that also is a judgment. So we have to make the distinction between these two types of mental states with the, with the very, this is called investigation of Dhamma. Investigation of Dhamma uh, when you investigate what you normally do, you ask questions. Like private investigators, they ask questions. All kind of questions. And then they sort out. And then find out what the, what they want to do. Similarly, we have to question ourselves, but we should not judge others. But we judge our own mental states to find out what I should do, what I should not do. I think if we understand this and keep this in mind, judgment in itself is not wrong. And Buddha said very clearly, very precisely mentioned is the uh, that uh, we must uh, uh, always look at our mind to make this judgment. <coughs> uh, you spoke very um, beautifully about anijang and tukang, the, imp- uh, the truth about impermanent and dissatisfactory of of all things. And I would like, um, I don't know whether you would, wouldn't mind speaking a little bit about anatta, uh-huh. the nature of anatta in all things. I think anatta also is a very important part. I, as you said, uh, deliberately did not touch that and waiting for somebody to ask me this question. (laughs) So, anicca, dukkha, anatta are trio coming in one package and these three are interrelated. 
before you go into dukkha and anatta, first thing you must be hundred percent clear is anicca, impermanence. So that is why we Buddha always mention impermanence first. And that is what we have tried to practice in mindfulness meditation, see impermanence first. Paying 100% total mindful attention to impermanence all the time. And then the mind naturally glides into the next step to see how much I suffer by becoming attached to this impermanent thing. Then we see how attachment to impermanent things makes you suffer. And then, since everything is impermanent, everything is impermanent, nothing is exempt from impermanence, there's nothing to hold on to as self or soul. <coughs> Buddha did not come up with any uh, replacement for non-self, saying that this is self, this is not self, non-self. What he uh, did in every place where he dealt with the, thought, the notion of non-self is when somebody came up and said, this is self, somebody says, Form is self. Rupang attato samunupasati. The form is self. Buddha said, form is not self. Vedana attato samunupasati. Feeling is self. Buddha said, feeling is not self. Perception, somebody said, perception is self. Buddha said, perception is self, not self. So no matter what they came up with, Buddha said, that is not self. Then the person would ask the Buddha, then what is self? Buddha would say, that is not my term. You use the term self. <laughs> you define self. You tell me what is self. So the person gets stuck and come up with whole jargon of words. And Buddha said, that is not self. Then come up with another set of words. Buddha said, that is not self. No matter what set of words you come up with, Buddha simply denied that it is not self. It is just like this. <coughs> I like to illustrate things like this using, uh, explain these uh, things uh, using some similes. How many of you have seen longitude? How many of you have seen latitude? Capricorn, Equator, Kansas. How many of you have seen International Dateline? <laughs> Once I was traveling in Fiji Island and went to see a tomb of a man who has eaten 99 people. He was a cannibal, he has eaten 99 people. He gave up eating uh, human beings only after eating a Christian missionary. Not because God protected him, but uh, he killed the missionary and uh, boiled his body. But his leg was not uh, becoming soft. He went on boiling, boiling, boiling. It never became soft. 
Then finally what he, he discovered, somebody else found out, what he was boiling was his boots. <laughs> so it never became soft. Anyway, he gave up eating meat and uh, human beings and being cannibal. So I went to see his tomb, tombstone. On the way, on the right-hand side, there was a sign saying, Tomorrow. On the left-hand side, there is a sign saying, Yesterday. Where is today? Have you seen Wednesday? Have you seen Saturday? Any day of the, of the week, have you seen? Have you touched, perceived? No. Notion of self is like that. Very conveniently we use in order just to communicate. I cannot say this five aggregates tells such a such thing to such and such an aggregate. Nobody can understand it. <laughs> if I say I tell Mr. C, then you can relate to Mr. C and I. We, I, he, she, you, and so forth. We use these terms in order to make communication easy. Not that we assume that there is something permanent, eternal entity, unchanging something. So, we have to understand no self only in this way, since they are all impermanent. Okay. Any other question? I saw somebody else. Uh, yes. Yes. Oh. <laughs> when you warm up, our time will be over. <laughs> I I really enjoy your teaching. Thank you so much. Uh, great value to me. Um, remembering a statement by. Uh, Einstein that says uh, um, science without religion is lame and uh, religion without science is blind. And the Dalai Lama say if there is a conflict between religion and science, science would win. And from what I understand today, there is something called DNA or genetic makeup that is embedded in living beings in the form of uh, clinging to life, aversion to danger, and procreations. I wonder if you could make some comments. Thank you. In a way, <coughs> there is an element of truth in these statements that uh, uh, religion without science is uh, uh, blind eh? and uh, science without religion is lame. Uh, there is some uh, 
element in, uh, of truth in that. At the same time, we understand science is something that always deals with something material. Without material things, there is no science. You try to understand any part of science, whether it is physics, chemistry, biology, whatever, atoms and so forth, quarks, everything has to do something with material things. Uh, religion per se does not exist uh, in a vacuum. It exists in something in the world. For example, beings have to be there in order to uh, in order to some in order somebody to liberate. That means beings liberate from suffering. The suffering does not exist by itself. There has to be beings to suffer. Uh, so, in that sense there is a connection. But science uh, has nothing to do with Buddhism. Because uh, uh, Although we may use the scientific approach, scientific method, to deal with certain uh, approach to understanding, but Buddhism can exist without science. Uh, but there has to be uh, a connection between these two in order to discipline ourselves. But Buddhism is dealing with uh, uh, phenomenon, uh, phenomena, and this phenomena, uh, of course, naturally exists within the, uh, the framework that the scientists also use for their investigation. But these are two different approaches. One is the approach for material success, the other is an approach for uh, spiritual uh, success. <coughs> Yes, I saw this hand a couple of times, and yes. This is a um, follow-on question about love and attachment. Uh, did the Buddha have to leave his wife and child in order to lose his attachment, in, in order to achieve enlightenment? And do we have to leave the people we love in order to achieve enlightenment? Mm. I think that also is a good question. Uh, though the Buddha left his uh, wife and child uh, to uh, find out a solution to this uh, ongoing predicament, human predicament, uh, after attaining enlightenment he found out that uh, uh, even lay people can attain enlightenment without leaving their spouses, children and so forth. And he, that is why when he uh, uh, discovered this method of Noble Eightfold Path, he did not introduce uh, celibacy. 
in the Noble Eightfold Path you never see celibacy. What you find there is uh, uh, misconduct in sensual pleasures or sensual misconduct. Abusing senses is to be avoided uh, according to Noble Eightfold Path. And then, as soon as he attained enlightenment, he uh, said, as according to Buddhist uh, mythology, when Mara approached the Buddha and asked him to pass away, when Siddhartha Gautam was leaving home, Mara tried to stop him and said, Why do you want to leave home? You can live a as a prince and do meritorious deeds. You can give dana, you can observe the five precepts, and you can be very have a good service to people and so forth. Um, you can enjoy both sides, spiritual as well as material, by being a prince. Why do you want to leave the home? Leave home? Send Buddha, shun him aside, you get out of my way. And so he went on and attained enlightenment. After attaining enlightenment, Mara came and said, Now, you attained your, you, you reached your goal, fulfill your wish. Why you want to continue? Go, die, disappear, get lost. Buddha said, <laughs> you, Mara, get out of my way. And he said, until, this is a very beautiful statement, until I establish the order of bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, upasakas, upasikas, who have attained aranthut, anagamihut, Sakadagamihut and Sotapanhut. That means, until I establish the four segments, four classes of order, order of bhikkhus, order of bhikkhunis, order of upasaka, laid men, disciples, and order of lay women, disciples, who, all of them, who have attained the last stage of sainthood, that is Aranthut, third stage of sainthood, that is never eternal stage, second level of enlightenment, that is once eternal stage, and the first level of enlightenment, stream entry. Until I see all of them have attained these four stages, I will not pass away. Then, when he was going to pass away, last moment, he said to Bhikkhus, and he said to himself, Now it is time for me to pass away. He gave three months' notice to everybody. <laughs> who, who can give three months' notice to somebody to, you know, before passing away? He had so precise plan, very clear. He said, Now I have established the order of Bhikkhus, order of bhikkhunis, order of upasikas, order of upasakas, who have attained the enlightenment full arahanthud, anagamihud, sakadagamihud, and stream entry. Now I fulfill my mission, now I am going to pass away. Get ready, prepare. Three months I give you notice to mourn and cry and weep and so forth, you do all these things. If you want to attain enlightenment, get last instruction. I give you three months' notice, come, get the instructions, and so forth. 
out of the door with them. Now, this plan shows that lay people cannot attain enlightenment. And he proved that there were lay people who have attained enlightenment. Even Arahantu, although they did not live too long, they attained Arahantu. In seven days he, they became monks or passive. That's the different thing. But he established this. That means there are also certain misunderstandings like uh, in uh, Alagadhutam Sutta, Bhikkhu uh, Aritta said, uh, uh, Buddha said certain things are obstructive to attain enlightenment. Then he said, he, thought, he said to himself and others, but I don't think that everything is that everything that Buddha said obstructive are really obstructing, and still you can attain enlightenment. That misunderstanding he got by seeing lay people attaining enlightenment, because they still have greed, they still can have hatred. They still can have delusion, and still they can attain enlightenment, stages of enlightenment. For example, one who attains the stream entry is not totally free from greed, or hatred, or confusion. But they have attained the stream entry. Even monks who have left home, become monastics, can still have greed, hatred, and delusion and yet attain the first level of enlightenment. So, one does not have to give up everything to attain the first level, second level, third level. Only when you attain the fourth level, you got to get rid of every last scruple of desire and ignorance. I think, friends, uh, I uh, mentioned at the beginning I have, I can spend only one hour answering questions. Mm -hmm. Now, I think according to our Tony's uh, suggestion, he can have a break. Is it now to have a break or later? Yeah, now walking meditation and then break. Okay. Now what I'm going to do, <coughs> uh, I uh, demonstrate while explaining walking meditation, you just uh, sit and watch and listen to my explanation and then uh, we can walk, if you like, uh, that is the break. Walking, while walking, you meditate, and that also can be treated as a break. And then come back and continue our uh, either talk or whatever. So let me uh, demonstrate walking meditation. I use this space, maybe up to that chair, from this uh, 
this uh, paraphernalia here, and um, and I explain uh, how we do it. stand when we want to walk, we stand in an attentive position for one minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, however long we like to stand. You stand relaxing your body, relaxing your mind, closing eyes and focusing your, on your breath stand for sometimes. If you want to stand for four minutes uh, to uh, know the, the, that length, actually you don't have to do anything, you stand as long as you can, like this. And then bring your hands to the front, Hold it them against your lower abdomen like this. While breathing in, lift the heel of one foot. You just watch my feet. While breathing out, press that foot on its toes. Again, while breathing in, lift that foot. Carry it forward while breathing out, lower it and press against the floor. And again while breathing in, lift the heel of the other foot. While breathing out, press it on its toes. While breathing in again, lift that foot, carry it forward while breathing out, lower it and press against the floor. Again while breathing in, lift the heel of the other foot. While breathing out, Press that foot on its toes. While breathing in, lift that foot, carry it forward. While breathing out, lower it and press against the floor. So let me do this first and then I explain again. When you go from point A to point B, stop again, facing the same direction, relaxing your hands, relaxing the body, closing your eyes, focusing mind on the breath as you started at the beginning. And then stand as long as you like, one, two, three, four minutes or whatever length of time. And then again, bring your hands to the front as before, hold them against the lower abdomen, open your eyes, focus on the floor, only few feet away from you, without looking at your feet or without looking anywhere else. <clears throat> and then turn around while breathing in, lift the heel of one foot, 
while breathing out fresh dead food on its toes, while breathing in again, lift the foot, turn around while breathing out, lower it and press against the floor. And again while breathing in, lift the heel of the other foot, while breathing out, rest it on its toes. While breathing in again, lift the foot, turn around, while breathing out, bring it down, press against the floor. Again while breathing in, lift the foot, heel of one foot, while breathing out, press that foot on its toes. While breathing in, lift the foot, turn around, while breathing out, lower it and press against the floor. Again, while breathing in, lift the heel of the other foot. While breathing out, rest it on its toes. While breathing in, lift the foot, turn around. While breathing out, bring it down and press against the floor. Then again, while breathing in, lift the other fo- heel of the other foot. While breathing out, rest it on its toes. While breathing in, lift the foot, turn around. While breathing out, press it against the floor. Then you are, you have turned around 180 degrees and then again stop moving, stand again, focusing your mind on the breath, closing your eyes, relaxing your hand and body, holding your hands in a relaxed position like this. After some times, again start walking as before, lifting the heel of one foot, breathe in, resting that foot on his toes, breathe out, lifting that foot, breathe in, and carry forward while breathing out, bring it down and press against the floor. Now let me stop and explain this walking, slow walking meditation. This is a very, very slow walk. This is not the walk you want to do when you want to catch the bus. (laughs) It's a very extremely slow walk. Why do you want to make such a slow walk? Because you want to understand what really is happening, what really is involved in walking. You experience the body, you experience the feelings, you experience perceptions, you experience the volitional formations, you experience consciousness. All of the five aggregates are involved in walking. Five aggregates are always involved in all of our volitional activities. You cannot snap your finger without the without five aggregates getting involved. How can that happen? The two fingers come and Middle finger, what your finger, and the body. Body in the body. <laughs> and you feel the touch 
That is feeling in the feelings. Feeling among feelings. Feeling aggregate. Then you perceive, visually and mentally you perceive these two coming together. That is perception aggregate. You uh, uh, snap. Then again you have contact and feeling. That's feeling aggregate again. And you do all this with intention. That is volitional formations aggregate. And you do all this with awareness, consciousness. It doesn't happen unconsciously. And that is your consciousness aggregate. All the five aggregates, aggregates come together in one finger snap. Similarly, every volitional activity we perform, all the five aggregates are there. You can separate them and think, keep thinking one by individually, one by one. All of them happen so quickly. Similarly, when we walk, the body, the feet are the form. As we lift one heel, from the moment we start lifting, we feel the lift. That is the feeling aggregate. When we rest, we feel the rest. That is the feeling aggregate. We do this intentionally. That is volitional formation aggregate. And we mentally perceive, we don't look at the feet, mentally perceive. Perceive the body, perceive the feelings, perceive the perceptions. That is the volitional formation aggregate. Intentionally we do that. And we are fully conscious of it. As a consciousness aggregate. When you pay mindful attention to these things, as you walk slowly, all this becomes very, very clear in your mind, and you can experience the changes, impermanence, of everything you do in your walking. Don't say words when you lift. Don't say in words, lifting, 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 lifting. When you rest, don't say resting, resting, resting. Because when you use words, you block the awareness. The word, mind will be locked in your word. You cannot see what is behind words. Word is your, la- your labels. When you stick the label, you don't know what is behind the label. <laughs> don't put the label. Sometimes your experiences are so deep and profound and happen so quickly, you never find label for them. And so many things are happening to you, you run out of labels. When you try to put labels, you have to find glue. You don't have enough glue. Your tongue will be dry. So, don't use labor. Another thing, when you walk very slowly, paying total attention, all these activities, their impermanence, become, become very clear, very conspicuous. Uh, but when you walk very fast, you don't experience all these things. My very favorite simile to illustrate this is this. 
you all watch games, don't you? When you watch games, when two teams are playing very quickly, the referee suddenly stops the game. The spectators don't know why he stopped the game. And this is there is a very uh, meaningful device that is video camera. So the video camera man records everything. So the referee asked the video camera man to replay that particular part in slow motion. Yes, <laughs> it in slow motion. Each and every one of you can see the reason why the referee stopped the game. Players play out, made a mistake. That mistake you can see only when it is played in slow motion. Similarly, when you walk very slowly, paying total undivided, non-conceptual awareness to your walk, everything will register in your mind. So you can be totally mindful of everything that happens to your walk. Again, when we walk very slowly like this, mindfully, you become so calm, relaxed and peaceful, you can walk hours on without getting tired. Thirdly, this walk becomes so peaceful you may even feel that you are breathing from your feet not through your nose. This is just like dream walk. Body-mind becomes so relaxed and calm and peaceful. So, uh, you develop your mindfulness, you develop your concentration, sometimes you may feel sleepy while walking. Then you sit down, don't walk that time. <laughs> Actually, this is very, very peaceful. For these reasons, we ask you to walk very slowly first. Once you got used to slow walk, then you can increase the walk, increase the speed. Even when you increase the speed, since the mind has only trained to watch the detail in slow walk, even when you walk a little faster, you can notice the details. First you take two breaths per stride. When you are very comfortable and very clear, you can have one, one breath per stride. Then, then later on you can have two stride per breath and still you will not lose your awareness, insight, understanding of impermanence and so forth. For this reason, we uh, recommend you to start with slow walk and... Oh. Now, if you like, you may experiment it outside and uh, walk. That is your little break, little exercise after your meal.
at the same time exercise of mindfulness of walking. You may try that. <coughs>